You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. So welcome, Randy. Um, The first thing that we would like for you to do is to, um, would you be willing to read the passage that you've chosen for us um, that has the potential to to turn the world upside down? Okay. So uh, Christ is the invisible image of the, uh, I'm sorry, let's start over again. This is out of Colossians 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, and unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead so he is first in everything for god in all his fullness was pleased to live in christ and through him god reconciled everything to himself he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth and by means of christ's blood on the cross thank you so we'll come back to that text in a little bit but we actually um, would love to hear some of your own story and so particularly as we think about um, your own story as it relates to the Jewish and Christian scriptures. When do you first remember encountering the scriptures and what was that like to be encountering those scriptures? So I, I, I think we need to qualify that question first, if we can. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you, you know, you're dealing with a professor as soon as we start. And it's like, well, let's qualify the question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I still have that stink of academia on me, I guess. So, um, so uh, you know, I, I'm one of the probably few Native folks, Native theologians, who would say that um, I I don't believe the Scripture should have ever been translated for our people. Yeah. So I know uh, some of your other Indigenous uh, guests you've had on would disagree with me. That's okay. Those are friends of mine. Um, But the the problem is that we had, as indigenous people, a vehicle for transmitting truth and story long before there was something written down. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I would even argue that the scriptures themselves are not properly interpreted through writing, but they were meant to be oral, especially the Hebrew scriptures. Mm But um, the the problem is is, um, when you write these things down, for Native people, uh, traditionally, it takes away the, uh, I guess, the depth of meaning. Um, mm. It detracts from the story. When you chop it all up into chapters and verses and books, and um, it takes away from the story. And the, um, the Bible is basically 90% story. Yeah. yeah. And so if we could have just had the stories told... Mm, we could have yeah. transmitted those in our own way and our own understandings instead of having outside understandings imposed upon us. Now, let me tell you a story. When I was um, pastoring in Nevada, I pastored at Carson City, Nevada, a native church for uh, seven years. And um, I would translate those 
uh, scriptures that we would talk about into a more contextual language so that uh, they, they meant something to those folks who were there. And I would always get people after the service who would say things like, hey, uh, can you make a copy of that scripture for me? Um, mm. But I couldn't get them to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. They would not read the Bible. And these are mostly traditional people, like yeah. traditional, not traditional Christian, traditional indigenous religious yeah, people. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. And, and our church was made primarily of traditional people. So, uh, and so I, I, I asked the group of them one time, I said, you know, why is it you guys won't read the Bible? And they said, well, white man wrote the Bible. And I'm like, well, no, that's not, that's not right. Let's, how can uh, we, we create, let's create a, a study and, and talk about who these people are who wrote the, the Bible, because those were brown skinned tribal people, most of them. So, mm -hmm. um, so we did that study. And, and you know, as we progressed through the, the class, that, the little class that we held, um, we got to the idea of translation committees. And they said, who's on all the translation committees? Well, they were almost all white men, right? Wow. Right? Yeah. That's right. And so the Bible has been passed on and translated by white men all these years. And, and the logic was sound. Well, hey, they will put things in there that, that they want us to hear that we may not want to hear. And they will take things out that they don't want us to hear because that's what white people do. Yeah. And we have a, a stack of, you know at least 800 treaties in this country that have not been kept by the United States government. And so uh, it's very difficult to see beyond that stack of treaties that there would be any validity in something written by white people. Yeah. Wow. And, so, um, and so when I approach the scriptures, I look for the story. Yeah. Uh, my friend, uh, you may have heard of uh, Ray Aldred, who's the head of the Indigenous Studies Program at Vancouver School of Theology. Ray and I in Tear the Blanc and Richard Twist and several of yeah. us started the Nates, uh, right. initial uh, uh, starters of the Nates program, North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Right. And, and Ray will always say in his deep voice, just listen to the story, hmm. he'll say. He'll, he says <laughs> it all the time. Just listen to the story. Forget about everything else. Forget about the chapters. Forget about what you've been told. Just listen. What is the story saying? Yeah. And so when I look at scripture now, I'm looking it through my indigenous eyes, right? Yeah. And I had to be challenged and decolonized in order to do that. Yeah. Um, and so now I look at the story and say, what is the truth in that story? Yeah. Whether that yeah. story is fact or not makes no difference to me. It's not even a question I have. It's right. just what is the truth that the writer is wanting to communicate in this? And I think, by and large, the white evangelical, especially but Christian church in general, has how to even look at Scripture all wrong. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, you're going to look at it through your lens and your worldview, and you're going to mm -hmm. create something that those people who wrote this never intended to happen. No one who wrote the Scriptures is a post-Enlightenment person. Yeah. yeah. They're all pre-Enlightenment people. Yep. And so my argument is this, that indigenous people and often other people of color uh, are much more qualified to interpret the scriptures than mm -hmm. people with a Western white worldview. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, with that said, I'll answer your question. Uh, <laughs> the the that's, best that's preamble. That's a good preface. That's to, a yeah, great preface. totally. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> 
so I think I began to, you know, I mean, I was a kid. I was brought up in a, a, a Baptist church. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the Bible was, you know, up front and premier and people were, you know, getting everybody to memorize it and all that kind of stuff. But the, but I, I came back to Jesus at age 19, uh, from, you know, a pretty rough lifestyle, uh, drugs and all of that stuff. And, and, uh, and I began to wrestle with the scriptures at that point. And so, so really when I was 19 years old is really when I first began to really wrestle with what are these scriptures about and, and, and why when I read things like the book of Acts and the things that Jesus says, is the church not doing what it's supposed to be doing? It's like, that was my first question to the rest. It's like, you know, well, the book of Acts is this little window into the story of what's happening. Well, why is the church today so different? than the church of the first century in terms of their values and their accomplishments and what they're trying to do. So, yeah. Yeah. So that dissonance, Randy, between um, uh, <laughs> the church you're encountering in those um, uh, pages that you're being taught to memorize um, and uh, w what you experienced, w would you name that initial experience as the scriptures were something that were liberating or were they oppressive or was it um a combination of both where, where would you situate yourself on a on a spectrum of oppressive down one end and liberating at the other in those first encounters yeah so i i i was 10 years old when i went to my only summer church camp hmm. um and um my parents both of them are mixed bloods mixed blood cherokee and white um the uh uh, and all their friends at our church and all over, a lot of those were, were mixed, the people we hung out with, mixed blood Cherokees and whites, they get together. Some were, they're from all over the South. My parents were part of what we call the Great Migration up to, to uh, Detroit and uh, to work in the automobile factories and things like that. And, and, um, and so, uh, you know, they would sit around and talk and, and uh, some were from Alabama and some were from Kentucky and some were from Tennessee and, and then, you know, most of them had ancestry of, you know, their grandmother or whoever was, was Cherokee or Choctaw or Creek or Chickasaw or Shawnee. And, and so those were kind of, but, but they were all people who had basically assimilated. Mm. Well, when I was a, you know, young kid, seven, eight years old, I decided that I didn't want to be assimilated. I wanted to be a real Indian. Right. So, um, so we went to this church camp and lo and behold, there was one guy there who was a full blood and uh, he was an Ojibwe guy. And, uh, and I don't even know his name. They called him Cream Puff, but you know how they give you, I guess, at church camp, silly names. I don't know what, what his name really was. But, uh, but he took me out that week and he saw my interest and, you know, I was enamored. Uh, he taught me how to harvest sassafras and, wow. and uh, how to canoe and, you know, those kinds of things. And, and uh, for me, this was like heaven, right? And at the end of the time, he said, you know, quoted scripture and said, you know, would you like to, to meet Jesus? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. So I uh, went back to my cabin that night. Everybody was falling asleep and I, and they were down there by the fire when he had asked me this. And so uh, I thought, and, I, and it's, it's funny, right? Because I was praying already hmm. and I was saying, God, if, if I can sneak out of here without anybody catching me, and I don't know why I felt like I had to sneak out, right? Because probably they would usher me down there if I said, I want to meet Jesus, you know, but, uh, but I, uh, then I'll go down there and I'll ask you into my heart. Right. 
And so uh, I did that, and, and Cream Puff was still down there, and I said, you know, I want Jesus in my heart, and I'm sure that was in response to some kind of scriptures and what I knew of the scriptures. And so at 10 years old, um, that was my first experience. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, as a teenager, sort of walked away from all of that for a number of years, and then at 19 came back, yeah. Yeah, wow. So I would say um, at first they were liberating, and then they became binding, and then they became liberating again, and then binding again uh, for a number of years as I yeah. learned that I was supposed to just become, you know, like everybody else. And, uh, you know, my, it cut my hair. You know, I had my long hair. I had braids. I, I had, uh, you know, all of my AIM posters and all those things up in my room, and they just said, forget about all that Native stuff. Just follow Jesus like us, right? right. So, um and then it was uh, finally um, maybe uh, four years after that that I began to wrestle. After I'd already had been called to the ministry, had a you know I had my white man ties and I had a three piece suit and and uh, you know I was I was a flaming evangelist. I was preaching at Jesus festivals and on the street and at three in the morning downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, pimps and prostitutes and everybody else and witnessing and leading people to Jesus and setting up a runaway uh, programs for runaway youth and homeless people. And, and uh, like I said, I was a flaming evangelist. And, uh, but all of that uh, began to, I began to wrestle with what I was learning and, and who I was and uh, realized yeah. that, uh, that there was something more um, that I was missing. And so I needed to find out what that more was. And I think that's when I really began to wrestle with scriptures and they began to be more liberative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. All right. So Randy, well, thinking about what you, all that you already shared about your story, one of the things that we like to do is uh, inviting our guests to share a gift with um, our listeners. And so as you think about your own story and how you've kind of wrestled and engaged the stories of the Bible, what might you want to share? Like a, you think about hermeneutics, right? How people ought to, what might be a gift to how they could read the scriptures and hear these stories and interpret them um, in a fresh ways. And so what from your experience would you like to gift to our listeners? And I know you have many, um, but, <laughs> but if you were to um, pick something, what might you want to share as a gift for our listeners in terms of how to engage the stories of the Bible? Right. So all listeners, I mean, we're talking about all kinds of people, rich, poor, white, black, everything, right? Yeah, okay, so because diverse. it might be different if we're only talking about like white folks or something. Yeah, I might want to give them a little different gift. You know, it's diverse <laughs> and global. Yeah, yeah. Though if you want to share, speak specifically to white folks, I'm sure that that's certainly uh, acceptable as well. I, I do that all the time, so I'll just go with the general, uh, yeah, the general yeah, gift. Yeah. So, so what I would say is that that um, we must begin to take shalom seriously in the scriptures yeah. and understanding. From the very beginning, from the, the first 11 stories of Genesis are all about, uh, you know, this, this balance and this harmony and this shalom and it, in it being broken at every level. And then right. how it comes back together under the prophets and under some of the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus with, with the uh, safety nets of, um, uh, you know, uh, leaving a seventh of your land fallow and and uh, leaving grapes out when you forget them and don't glean the, you know, the edges of your field and all of that for, for poor people 
and for um, uh, wild animals and those, those things that need to feed themselves. And also for the earth itself, the earth stays fallow uh, and completely fallow every seventh years, uh, seven years. So, uh, and then of course there's the 50th year Jubilee and all of that. All of that, what I call the Sabbath Shalom uh, Jubilee construct. Mm. All three of those themes which are interweaved together throughout scripture, they are the theme of Jesus. They are the theme of scripture. If, if you can put together one theme consistently, well, that's the theme. And Jesus' kingdom was a shalom kingdom. Yeah, and right. so he was talking about something old and something new. He was talking about something that he was trying to uh, uh, create an understanding that's both personal and structural. Mm. Yeah. And so if we neglect this whole system of shalom, which often I call it structured love, uh, is what shalom yeah. is. Yeah. If, we, if we neglect that, we miss everything of what the purpose of the scripture is. And now, Christianity has this odd relationship with um, Jesus. Um, <laughs> they... Christians like Jesus for certain things, but not others. But you have to understand the whole picture of what Jesus was about. Yeah. And Jesus was about shalom. That means that you, if you claim to follow Jesus, you have to be about shalom. You have to be about both personal and structural. You have to be voting shalom. You have Mm. to be changing the educational system, changing an economic system, changing uh, the ecological system. You know, uh, all of these systems that are in play need to be infused with Jesus Shalom from people who say they follow him. But unfortunately, evangelical Christianity in particular, which is the sort of strain that I've been in and out of for so long, um, has neglected to understand Jesus and his Shalom kingdom, his Shalom teachings. And so if I could give one gift, I would say, you know, Hey everybody! Wake up to what Jesus is really about. Yeah, Randy, you have this incredible passage in uh, um, your outstanding text, Shalom in the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision. And if you don't mind, I'll um, uh, uh, read it. You say God's will and cosmic design is that no one suffer unjustly, <coughs> but because human beings created unjust systems, Shalom type social parameters must serve as a social safety net to offset human disobedience in order to create shalom system of social harmony no person should be oppressed for too long without the hope of ease of eventual release no family can remain in poverty for generations no land can be worked until it was depleted and useless no animals could go hungry for too long any of these violations of shalom that were left unmitigated for too long would upset the natural order of reciprocity fixed in all creation i'm aware that for many randy um uh, shalom gets summed up as, oh, it's Hebrew for peace. Or uh, as one of my um, Israeli mates um, uh, who came into my office, and uh, as you can maybe see in the background, um, uh, uh, God of Shalom is, is written uh, above um, the cross. And um, she asked me, uh, so why do you have God of hello um, written? <laughs> <laughs> which, which I thought was hilarious. Um, for, for those who do fall into um, shalom is a, a greeting if you're in Palestine, Israel, or is just a Hebrew way for peace. Um, can you uh, speak to how an indigenous 
um, vision can help us recover a, a, a more Hebraic understanding of what Shalom actually is instead of our safe packaged um, Hebrew equivalents to the English word peace? Sure, I'll do that and, and just defer to someone like Walter Brueggemann, who you've had on the show, yeah. um, to explain it in, in the Hebrew uh, language. Yeah. Because it, it's so many it is, you know, it's, it's shalem, it's shalom, it's, you know, and all these derivations that mean all these things like, you know, restitution and repayment and equality and equity and, you know, uh, all these kinds of things. So, so there's all of that. But we have similar constructs among our Native American people on Turtle Island here. Mm. Um, and, and we each call it by something different. In, in Cherokee, we call it Elohe or Deyukti. In uh, Navajo, they call it hojon. It's the, the harmony way or beauty way, the balance. Um, it's different among every tribe, but, but guess what? All of our tribes have it. Mm. And that is our deepest held value. And so the values that uh, undergird shalom in scripture are the same values that undergird our indigenous values and practices. Mm. And uh, I, I asked Walter Brueggemann one time, uh, we were together at a conference speaking together and, and um, or speaking not together, but both were speaking at different times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I haven't had that pleasure yet, but um, uh, he, uh, I, and I said, you know, when, when I understood Shalom from doing my dissertation work, which was basically about a harmony way practice among my own people using Shalom as a sort of a, a undergirding theoretical um, construct. Um, I said, you know, I've had Maoris, I've had um, uh, from Australia, from New Zealand, Aborigines mm. from Australia, Hawaiians, Ikalahan, Philippines. Uh, I've had uh, Maasai uh, from Kenya. I've mm. had Zulu from South Africa. I've had uh, Sami from Norway. I've had people from all over the world say, that's also what we believe. Mm. That's also what we practice, those values. That, that you found in your harmony way construct. And so I, I said to uh, uh, Brueggemann, uh, would it be going too far to say that this is the original instructions for all humankind? And he said, absolutely not. That, that's, that's right on, spot on. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is how we are to act as human beings. And Jesus was trying to get us to become more human. Right. right. Being human is the most spiritual thing that we can be. Yeah, beautiful. So, Randy, with, with that in mind, realizing that, and and hopefully, what um, the the heartbeat for Drew and I behind Inverse is helping people recover um, uh, readings of scriptures that uh, do um, liberate instead of oppress. Um, uh, because I am so fascinated by um, your your section in um, Shalom in the Community of Creation um, about Christ as Creator, I've I've actually chosen a text for you rather than let you choose, which is what we do with most of our guests. Um, uh, but I, I would love you to explore Colossians 1 some and uh, uh, help, help us read in, in such ways that um, do turn our world upside down. And I'm also aware, um, as you were sharing right at the start, that there is so much work for many of us to do to recover the narratives that um, the epistles rest in, um, that this is a, uh, uh, Paul and his own story um, of uh, his zeal and um, uh, willing to to knock off 
this um, uh, nonviolent uh, messianic group um, and his own transformation and then now in prison is the context of him writing to this place that he might not have ever been to um, of somebody that he knows one person in the community um, but I, I would love if if you wouldn't mind to open that up in such ways that uh, um, we get a sense of your Indigenous visions and the different Indigenous visions, how they can actually help uh, decolonize uh, ways of reading the text that do flatten this. Yeah, by flatten, you mean? Uh, that they become uh, two-dimensional, um, uh, lifeless uh, platitudes, um, timeless, uh, in the sense of um, having uh, nothing timely to say to realities of um, uh, structural injustice and uh, our world's most pressing issues like our ecological crisis. Yeah, yeah. So so part of the problem, um, of, of course, of, of Christians is that they don't actually believe the scriptures. Uh, and so <laughs> yeah. when... When you have in uh, four different books, you have uh, John 1, you have Colossians 1, you have Hebrews 1, 1, and, and later in Hebrews, and you have Coloss or, uh, Corinthians, uh, I think it's First uh, Corinthians 9, 7 maybe, um, mm -hmm. where you have at least uh, uh, two, possibly three different, well, three people um, attributing um, the ontology, I guess you would say, of Jesus uh, as the creator. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, and you don't take that seriously. It, it messes everything up. And, and the, re the reason it does that is because it gets out of balance. If we don't take that seriously, then what do we do? There's an overemphasis on the cross and an underemphasis on the incarnation yeah. and what God has done um, in, in creation as creator and becoming creation, God's self. And however you want to interpret that story, again, um, for me, it doesn't matter if you believe it is true or not. There's a story there that we need to hear, and then we decide what is true for us, and each person has that privilege. Yeah. So, um, But and, if we can actually if, hear it, right? Like, if, 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 if it actually it. registers. Yeah. So if Jesus is, first of all, it's an indigenous person. If mm. Jesus is creator because the Bible says so, um, then who have our people been praying to all along? Now, I'll ask this. Mm. I'll read a scripture like this, uh, this or the first John passage, or John 1 passage, sorry. And, uh, and then I'll say to people, to an audience, um, so who is the creator? And invariably, they will all answer, God. And I'll say, let me read that again. Like, uh, for instance, on, in John 1, um, uh, he made everything that was made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, who is the creator? God. And then I'll, I'll read the Colossians passage and the same thing. <laughs> but they can't bring themselves to say Jesus is the creator because they have this modalism where it's yeah. got to be God the Father that creates and Jesus yeah. that gets incarnated. And, you know, and so... Um, and, and, and so it does a disservice, and what happens is we become imbalanced. We only understand the cross is, is what's important. Mm -hmm. And if the cross is all that's important, you know, job done, all we got to do is tell everybody. Sounds like a right. simple story, doesn't it? Unfortunately, the world doesn't operate like that. 
Right. Rule operates through change agents who do the right thing. Mm. And so um, as, as people who take that seriously, and as an indigenous person who takes that seriously, I look and say, who have my people, if Jesus is the creator, the, what we theologically would call the efficacy of creation, right? Um, uh, if Jesus is the creator, then who have we been praying to all this time? Mm. We've been praying to the creator. Right. And I'll ask indigenous people that. And they'll say, God. And I'll say, if Jesus is the creator, who have we have been praying to? But you know what? They can't bring themselves to say Jesus. Yeah. Because, oh, that's only reserved for the, you know, the white missionaries who came along to tell us about that. We mm. couldn't have discovered Jesus on our own. I mean, we couldn't have discovered the, a God that's so big that he didn't come on a boat with the Europeans, you know? <laughs> a creator who's so uh, unique and so wonderful that we understood you know, much about Jesus and, and even had a lot of our own stories. Yeah. Um, but we didn't know the, the, the story that's in the Old Testament and the story that is fulfilled in the New Testament. So I'm not for throwing those stories out. Those stories substantiate our relationship with Christ. Right. Okay, I'm going to have to let Archie out. I'm so sorry. Can you guys hear him? I'm so sorry. <laughs> He's giving me the hardest time today. This never happens, Randy. Well, maybe it's because uh, he knows the gospel is good news for all creation and you're on, Randy. He feels like his voice needs right. to be heard as well. <laughs> Excuse me one second. Archie, come on. <sighs> Have you ever been over to uh, Carlisle? Um, not a lot. I mean, it's not too far, but I haven't been over there much. But I am familiar with. Make a, yeah, make a trip over there and yeah. uh, uh, and take a look at the cemetery. Yeah. And yeah. see where all the children are from. They're from all over the United States. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, wow. it's amazing. Um, In fact, that, that just was the, reminds me. Yeah, and you know, you finish. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just, we're, I'm working on a project where we're going to try to do some local education. I got to make sure that we make sure that that's on the list for stops. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And then show, take them to um, the boarding school healing project online. And there's a lot of resources there. I'm so sorry. Okay. Archie's got needs too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, Randy, I'm fascinated even in terms of the Nicene Creed that um, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and uh, Jesus begotten, and there's all these questions. Um, and earlier we were talking <laughs> about James Cone and um, uh, in his uh, one of his earlier works, he talks about the different questions uh, Luther would ask about the presence of oh, God. Of God. The oppressed, right. Yeah, in God of the thanks, Drew. Um, if uh, if he was uh, facing the whip and the reality of the cotton fields, um, and the question would be, how is God present, not at the communion table, but um, in the cotton fields uh, under the, the threat? I'm aware that um, uh, 
there are different questions that those who have connection to um, uh, Indigenous uh, ways of being uh, naturally ask of these texts. It, your your journey around that um, from um, uh, the hot gospeler on the street corner at 3am in North Carolina, um, how, how, how did that journey change and how did you see um, Jesus, how, how did who Jesus was changed as your picture? If he is the image of the invisible God, um, how did that image change for you on this journey of um, uh, reconnecting? Yeah, I can tell you exactly where, but before we do, you mentioned the Nicene Creed, and I, I have to, first of all, declare that, that that's the first universal uh, imperial doctrine of the church. Right. Um, right. As soon as the Nicene Creed was created, Christianity was was gone. It was lost, at least perhaps the movement that Jesus wanted to start. Christianity was was fine. Uh, and it's doing what it's but, but people who follow Jesus were in trouble after the Nicene Creed. Um, as soon as uh, we said, hey, everyone has to believe this, right. um, we Uniform. became, right. yes, we became, we became conquerors, not those who um, allow the voice of Jesus to lead us. Mm, yeah. um, so I was, um, I was working um, at a mental health center uh, with uh, adolescents, emotionally and behaviorally disturbed adolescents. <clears throat> and, you know, and I was into Jesus and all this. And, and you know, the uh, all my coworkers were all, um, and I, I didn't have a de degree. I was actually, I was like hired as the recreation person. This is in Denver, East Denver, uh, Colorado. Um, and, uh, and then, but, but they thought I worked so well with the kids, they decided to help me become a co-therapist. So I, I became a co-therapist there. And, uh, and they, they really wanted to see me, um, even though the, you know, most of them were atheists, um, they wanted to see me go on and, and use my brain. And so they found a, a, a Christian college in Denver and said, you know, you should go back and get your bachelor's degree. And so uh, I thought I will. And so I went to this place called Rockmont College um, it's no longer there. Uh, I, after I graduated, they hired me as the chaplain, and uh, I brought back dancing, and they say that's what actually closed the university down, but I'm not sure that's true. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, it did close, and, uh, and it merged and became uh, Western Bible College, and Rockmont became Colorado Christian University. And it, which is now like the headquarters for the young Republicans and stuff. It's, wow. it's like, you know, I'm sure I'm their most infamous graduate now, but uh, uh, so anyway, it, it's gone. But um, while I was there, it actually was a good Christian liberal arts education. Um, uh, one of my mentors, Gene Marlott was a, what we call a Renaissance man. And, and he, he took my young mind because I was raised in, in a, you know, near Detroit, Michigan, Willow Run, Michigan. And, you know, I had no inkling as to what education was about or didn't even know what a PhD was. And I was just sort of a young hoodlum and uh, um, just uh, was, was not on a, a road to education whatsoever. And, and he saw that. And uh, I had a little community college. I had my, my two years in the School of Evangelism at uh, Jim Baker's PTL Club. 
uh, where I was the learn to be a flaming evangelist. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so Gene took me under his wing and, and exposed my brain to, uh, things like, uh, futuristics and anthropology and all kinds of things. And, and the idea that there was something more to Christianity than just telling people a message. And, uh, after that closed, I went to Alaska for two years as a missionary oppressor. And I oppressed, uh, indigenous people wow. in Alaska for two years. Um, again, uh, adolescence, um, actually I, I kind of was living a double life there. I was trying to help them while at the same time oppressing them structurally, but, uh, uh helped them personally. But, um, uh, in that, uh, that's when I left Alaska and said, I'll never oppress my own people again. Um, I have to, and, and someone told me you need to go to seminary and I thought cemetery, you know, what's a, what's a cemetery? And, uh, and so I ended up going to Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary in um, uh, uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Ron Sider, Tony Campolo, Samuel Escobar, Montford brought great people. Um, and, and because I needed a social conscience, I went because I had this hole in my theology. I needed to have a social conscience, and I, I got everything I needed and more there. And that's where it all changed for me. That's where okay. I began to look at Jesus more uh, as an indigenous person, as a more holistic way, um, and that, um, that, that most of what I've been taught was, was at most very skewed, or at least very skewed, or at most not true. So, um, uh, and, and so that changed my life. And uh, after graduating from, uh, from Eastern in 1989, I went to Anadarko, Oklahoma, Indian Capital Nation. I was uh, uh, pastor to 10 pastor pastors. Uh, I had 10 churches that worked with me. Uh, I ran a neighborhood action center, a Christian center in the poor neighborhood on the other side of the tracks for, for years. Um, um, created some justice programs and, and other kinds of things and just basically began to bring about, try to bring about shalom in that community. Mm. And, uh, and then I've been making trouble ever since. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Randy, um, uh, we've had more questions for listeners um, than any other guest we've ever had on uh, in the lead up to to you coming on. And um, uh, one of them is a um, young guy here in Perth, Nathan Foster, who who asks, um, what's the biggest misunderstanding of people of faith have when it comes to hearing an Indigenous perspective of faith? And uh, I guess tied up in that is is how can um, uh, people who are not familiar, um, uh, I guess, be less damaging in receiving I- Indigenous perspectives? So I, w- I would I'd hit that question from both sides. Hmm. So on one side, you expect to hear most Indigenous Christians say something different than white missionaries have taught them, but don't. Because the majority of indigenous Christians are still struggling under sort of uh, trusting what the missionary said. So, so that's one side. Hmm. The other side is that um, uh, the validity of what native people have to say is, is, is an issue. It would be similar to 
our uh, ab Aboriginal folk there go through. Like, well, what, number one, what would they have to teach me? And, and secondly, um, you know, could I even receive any kind of teaching? Now, this is all going on subconsciously, right? Could right. I even receive something from an indigenous person? I mean, if I did that, it would mean that I would be equal to them. Wow. And we can't have that because right. social Darwinism, modern eugenics, um, social eugenics, however you want to put it, white supremacy, white privilege, uh, you know, has said that you have to be better than someone. And so white folks in America have to be better than black folks. They have to be better than native folks. They have to be better than uh, our uh, Latinx folk coming across the border. They have to be better than, you know, our um, folks flying in from the Middle East. And, and so and in, if you trace this pattern of white supremacy, um, back, uh, it comes out of a, a platonic dualism. Mm. When you create platonic dualism, which says basically that, that the mind or the spirit or something is more important than the physical or the body or the earth, um, you have to have a hierarchy at that point. And the hierarchy translates to race uh, with white folks, uh, Western European white folks, anyway. Mm. And, and so can I even hear what this indigenous person has to say? If I do, I have to change everything I've been taught in life. Mm. Now that is asking a lot. Yeah, sure. So Randy, I'm curious, um, as you're talking, it's, um, I'm thinking about my own experience. So as, a, as an African-American, probably I would say it was probably about like six years ago when suddenly like things just began to click for me. And I was like, you know, as a black community, like we have not, at least how I was raised, so I'm talking about like Philly, right? Um, Native Americans and indigenous communities just were not on our radar growing up. Um, and then six years ago, like it clicked, like our lives are like so bound up in terms of our experiences, even if not the exact experiences, but they're interconnected in really deep, profound ways. And I'm curious, what, what do you think about, um, Number maybe have you seen and also what would you hope for in terms of particularly in the United States in this land right uh, for communities and especially black and Native American communities to collaborate to seek shalom together what would that look like and maybe have you seen that happen in at times yeah so in 1992 I think if my wife was here she would correct my dates but um, <laughs> We helped lead something um, with a friend of mine named Jimmy McGee um, and uh, uh, something, uh, it was called the Pilgrimers for Reconciliation through InterVarsity, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Lisa Sharon Harper was on that bus, by the way. Yeah, wow. um, that's where we met for the first time. And, um, and I was leading the, the it, it, we had a week of learning about Shalom. We read Walter Brueggemann's book. Um, Terry McGonigal was our main teacher and Carolyn Hunter, Carol Hunter. And, and then um, I led uh, two weeks of the Cherokee Trail of Tears and uh, Bob Hunter led two weeks of the uh, Freedom Trail, Civil Rights Trail. So um, we, we traced basically all of these things from, uh, from 
Georgia, all the way out to Oklahoma, and then back down through Arkansas, Mississippi, et cetera. So um, um, at that point, um, I began to, and, and we hit the Civil Rights Museum in um, Birmingham, right? And, and that's from my wife had a conversion. Hmm. So I was raised in a black community. Hmm. So um, it, none of this was new to me. Yeah. It was new to me through fresh eyes uh, as a follower of Jesus that we were entering this together. But it was new to my wife who was raised on a reservation uh, and, and never even knew a black person until she went to college. Wow, and okay. so um, yeah. she was converted there. She was converted and she, she said they went through similar things that we did, you know. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and so if you read and understand um, and hear the stories of the intersection. First of all, um, we, we can't, you know, one of the things the black community can stop doing is saying the original sin of America is slavery because the original sin mm -hmm. of America is first land theft and genocide mm. that created the opportunity for slavery. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is not the oppression Olympics. We're not trying to see who's the most oppressed or anything like that, right. but these things are intersectional. They go hand in hand, and we have to understand that the same the same root caused these things, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and and, um, and and there's all kinds of prejudice, right? And there's all kinds of um, you know, I mean, there's the the prejudice of the noble savage, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's the prejudice of colorism. Mm -hmm. There's you know, there's all these different ways in which we intersect or don't intersect, and but we have all the root in common. Now, there's also a shared common history. Um, right. There's a, a shared common history in that um, a lot of uh, uh, slaves in the South, for example, would escape and go to um, the tribes of the South and they would take them in. Mm. Uh, this is particularly true for the Seminole tribe, um, right. but a lot of tribes, Cherokees, Choctaws, Creeks. Now, I have to say that, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of anti-Black racism among those tribes now. But, um, and in the East Coast, um, you have uh, a lot of your tribes, uh, whereas um, in the southeast, a lot of you have a lot of mixed blood white folk. In the east coast, you have a lot of mixed blood black folks from, say, Virginia North, right. um, who consider themselves native, but would uh, many would look physically black. Mm. Right. So, so there's all this common history, and we have a common cause. And um, in, in, in that we also have a, a common oppression in that we have both been colonized. Yes. And we have to find our way out of that. So there, there's enough there to last for a long time um, mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to join together, to do things together and seek shalom. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're always, I, I work um, both interfaith and I work interracial in all kinds of things. And, and in fact, almost everything we do now, because we know that, and, and, and we do not, um, in 98% in of the time, uh, uh, we encourage white folks to be a part of this too, because we have to heal together. Our, our oppression, you know, uh, Paulo Freire says in yes. uh, Pedagogy of the Press, which became one of my favorite books back in mm. um, my first year seminary, I think it was, um, uh, that that if the uh, oppressed get healed, they have to have the oppressor to continue to heal. So so mm -hmm. we, we need each other 
Um, our, our freedom is bound up in the, in, unfortunately, in the freedom of the oppressor. Hmm. And they, often the oppressor doesn't realize how oppressed they themselves are. And so sure. we need to set them free as well. And so, so there's a whole lot of, there's enough freedom to go around for everybody. Everybody, amen. <laughs> amen. Uh, Randy, in terms of verse 20, and, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Um, when reconciliation uh, often gets talked about um, uh, with these issues of um, those who uh, live in the aftermath um, and shadow of white supremacy, it gets talked about in ways that often less helpful and actually seem to require more blood. Um, uh, and the, the cross also gets talked about in ways that seem to um, uh, valorise um, suffering, uh, particularly suffering of uh, Indigenous peoples, um, uh, people of colour, um, uh, women, gay and lesbian people, uh, you, you name it, the list goes on in terms of um, uh, uh, people who seem to, to cop it the hardest. Uh, what is it to talk about um, uh, reconciliation and what's happening in this passage, or even to talk about the cross in light of the Harmony Way, in, in light of a Jesus whose um, program that has him hanging on that tree is Shalom, uh, is Sabbath economics, um, uh, is uh, Jubilee. Um, uh, how do we recover those things so they just don't become other ways to, again, silence um, people who are already suffering? Yeah. So, and this is actually where uh, the black church has such a great message when we talk about what, what Jubilee means now. What does mm. the resurrection mean now? And so, you know, I, I look to uh, my, uh, the traditional black church and the rising non-traditional black church and, uh, and, and the message that has been really uh, carried on for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, to, to direct us in that direction. Mm. Um, I, I don't think I can improve, improve on that. Um, it is Jubilee. It is um, this, uh, this empowerment, right? So uh, for me, my basic, well, I, I should start off by when, when Peter Heltzel, my editor and my friend, yeah. uh, when Peter, I turned yeah. in Shalom, you know Peter? Peter's yeah, he's guy. a wonderful guy. Uh, he's hilarious. I love Peter. <laughs> great. And, and, and I said, Peter, um, what do you think is going to be my main criticism from evangelicals about this book? And, and he said, well, I know what it's going to be. I, what is it? He said, well, you didn't mention the cross one time. Huh. So I have a theology that says that creation is as important as everything else in the life of Jesus. That mm. incarnation is as important as everything else. That Jesus' life and ministry and message as as important as everything else that happened to Jesus. And then the cross and the resurrection, um, I don't have to emphasize because everyone has emphasized those for forever to the imbalance. So hmm. so I'm not gonna you're you're not gonna hear that message from me. What you're gonna hear about is everything else that Jesus was about, because he was not just about a cross. 
Mm. Yeah, and I wonder, in light of your project, whether any talk of the cross um, uh, that leaves out those other parts do become inherently distorted, yes, like it, it becomes something that um, uh, is is grotesque. Um, uh, exactly. It, do you have some time for some of the other questions that listeners um, are keen to hear? Absolutely. Yeah, no, great. I, I love the people that that have the hopefully honest questions. That's all I care about if they are the honest questions. Well, um, uh, a, a mate of mine on the other side of Australia, um, Sunil, uh, he uh, loved um, what it brought up for him in terms of um, being an Indian Australian uh, in the sense of that um, he's from Southern India and um, the connection to um, uh, uh, the land there. And he loved in particular your talk of um, uh, the prodigal son and Shalom. And um, mm. he, he was wondering what other uh, stories that are so common in the Christian imagination get turned upside down when you have a, a Shalom lens, because he, he loved your take on the prodigal son. Right, and, and that, if you would have said, Randy, will you talk about your favorite scripture, it would have been Luke 15. Huh. Because that, that's my favorite, that, that, that one parable of three different parts. You know, yeah. we, we, we often teach on that as three parables, but it's just one parable. Yeah. And you, you miss everything about what it's about, including its impact on Shalom, if you well, think of that as each different thing. Maybe we can get you back, Randy, to, to teach on that another time. We'd love that. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, let's well, look at like, uh, let's look at John, uh, uh, the woman at the well. Is that John 6? John 4? But maybe I'm wrong. Let, let's have a look. Yeah, 4. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, look, yeah. here come the disciples back. Jesus talking to this woman. And, uh, and then he, it's what he says to his disciples that's so, most remarkable, right? Um, mm. He says, the fields are white for harvest, and you are going to reap what you have not sown. Now, who sowed? Hmm. I'm pretty sure there was no, you know, Jewish missionary to the Samaritans uh, you know, <laughs> organization. God was there beforehand, sowing among those people. They just needed Jesus to turn the light on. Hmm. And, and so, you know, I look at that and I look at our own indigenous people and say, of course, it makes sense. You know, um, it, it makes sense when you think about that Amos passage. I think it's it maybe like 12, 9 or something like that, where, hmm. where it says, hey, you know, Israel, uh, I let you, I, I led you out of Egypt, yeah, but I also led the, you know, the Philistines out of uh, somewhere, I forget where it is, and, and I led the the, uh, the Ethiopians out of Kerr, and I, you know, it's like God has this covenant relationship with everybody everywhere, yeah. and this is the basis of Shalom. You can look back to uh, Luke uh, chapter 4. Um, you know, he's he's speaking in the temple and uh, or in the synagogue, and you know the hometown rejects him, all that kind of stuff. And then what's he say? He says, "Hey, guess what? There is a um, 
there is a, uh, a, a Syrophoenician woman who was a widow. And guess what? God was visiting her. And, mm. and, and there was a stranger, a foreigner, right. uh, you know, who was actually a centurion, a, an oppressor of our people. And he was the lead centurion in, in oppressing our people. And guess what? He had leprosy, and God visited him through Elisha. And, and if you think about that, what is Jesus saying? Not, not only has God visited all peoples everywhere, but he brings up a widow, and he brings up a foreigner. And this is that holy triad, right? Mm. So who's the orphan? Mm. Who's the orphan? Jesus in his hometown. They try to kill him. He's the orphan. Wow. Incredible. So if you look through the scriptures, you begin to see that shalom is replete throughout everything. Even in, uh, even in all the epistles, uh, you know, they're all written for different occasions. Every epistle, the book of Romans included and everything else, is written because of a particular occasion. And that's why we have to be careful and universalize all those things, of course. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but, uh, um, uh, but, but even so, they speak of shalom. Look at 1 Peter 4.8, for example. Hey, above everything else, love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Right. And how do you express shalom? Don't neglect to be hospitable to one another. And when you take somebody in your home, don't complain about it. As each mm -hmm. one of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That is shalom. Yeah, wow. Well. And it always starts with hospitality. Yeah. Incredible. And, um, and if you look, if you follow the trail of Jesus, he has a whole lot to say about hospitality. Yeah, yep. totally. totally. <laughs> Carol, who's a, a phenomenal leader in Nairobi, Kenya, um, she's part of the uh, Shalom in the Community of God study group that Inverse is running. And one of the passages that she loved most in your second chapter is this line, Jesus' way of thinking, being chosen was simply responding to God's generous offer. It bore no rank or privilege. Um, it's a it's a very different way of thinking about election than you often hear in some pulpits where it's you're special over and above others versus um, election is vocation. It's you're special in that you've been caught up in this program to see that everybody is treated as if they're just as special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the, the scriptures, uh, at least uh, the, the, we make sure everybody has enough, right? Hmm. Not that everybody has the same. This is where, you know, our conservative uh, brothers and sisters get so upset that, you know, oh, everybody has to have the same. No, that's, that's not what it's teaching. But everybody has to have enough. And we have to have a safety net for those who can't get enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's equity, right? Right. Absolutely. And, and back to that passage you, you, you read from earlier, you know, um, the, the great thing about Jubilee is that every two and a half generations, you know, the rich can't get too rich and the poor can't get too poor. It yeah, all right. levels out again. And then the yeah. cycle starts again, and then it's a safety net. It comes back again, right? Right. right. Oh, on that, um, now, uh, we, we oh, sorry. Seriously, in our politics in America, um, mm -hmm. 
you know, we're, we are in trouble. Uh, yeah. Most of the people that are supporting this maniac uh, who's our president are, are people who call themselves Christians. Right. And they do not understand who Jesus is or what the scripture is about. Right. It's like they've never read the Gospel of Luke ever. That's what it seems like sometimes, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or we found ways to um, edit out Jesus's Jubilee economics and his take on the Sabbath and um, his nonviolent uh, program. And what you're left with is an understanding of the cross that, again, perpetuates people being hung on crosses. Yeah, yeah exactly. On that, um, AJ, who's a, a pastor from um, up Brisbane Way, um, Murrayland here in Australia, um, it, he talked about how the importance of Jubilee, that you highlight that in your work, Randy, and um, he asked, how do we challenge the, um, the kind of ignorance that comes w when people don't know about Jubilee? How do we challenge it in ourselves, others, and uh, systemically when uh, the church often doesn't hold up a vision of um, Jubilee in larger society? Yeah. So, I'm, you know, I, I'm not big on formulas. Like I can't say there's three steps to do that. Uh, everybody's situation is going to be different. And, you know, I would just say that, you know, the, the process is more important than um, uh, probably the, the program. And the process is that uh, you gather as wide a group as possible and you hear everyone's voice and you move forward together. And that, that's the most important way that things get, that happen in communities. Now, I want to mention, uh, you, you all have, uh, and maybe you've talked about this, but, but uh, you, you have a fellow in Australia named Chris Budden, B-U-D-D-E-N. Uh, mm. I don't know if you'd pronounce that Budden, or how would you pronounce Budden? it uh -huh. in Australia? Yeah. So he's written a book called Following Jesus in Invaded Space. Have you ever yeah. read that? Yeah. It's, okay. It's not in this room, but it's in the next room. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I teach out. I mean, use it all the time because when I read it, I, my, I was sitting here going, I think this guy's read my stuff and copied it, Edith. And she's like, what? <laughs> like somebody in Australia read your stuff? And so uh, because he was saying a lot of the things that, that, that I say, but I had never uh, put down in such coherent thoughts. <laughs> and so huh. I come to find out, that, you know, that, uh, that, that it made a whole lot of sense for people to be asking the same questions, right, in Australia. Yeah. And, and he asked the question, you know, how uh, does the church come to a, a valid theology on stolen land? Right. Yes, that's right. How, how does it reconcile wow. that? So that's the first issue you ask about how to, or, or uh, AJ asked about, you know, steps to, toward uh, understanding Jubilee and Shalom. But the, the first step is to, to find a theology that deals with the fact that Australia is on stolen land, and then it has its other nasty histories, just like we do. But, but that's the first problem. You have to solve that first. And, and when we talk about reconciliation, I was part with a, a number of the, some of the people you've, you've had on your programs, in fact, but, um, of a, a, my wife and I were part of uh, a group of about 30 reconcilers last uh, July, I think it was, in Tacoma. And, um, and these are people who are nationally known for their reconciliation ministries throughout uh, the world, really. And, um, um, and we walked away from there, and I hope everyone remembers this, that said, we will no longer talk about reconciliation 
without talking about reparations. Amen. Yeah, yep. that's right. Because when we do that, we only enable the dualistic thinking that that Western Christianity has come to to love. Mm-hmm. We give we 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 allow them the satisfaction of thinking they've done something when they've actually done nothing. That's right. And so that's right. So you asked me earlier what I think about you know a sort of a, a reconciliation if we talk about that. Well, I have a whole model and everything else. The part and parcel of that is reparations. That has to be done. There has to be action for it to be real. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it so often, certainly in the United States, um, most people that use the language of reconciliations have no framing for talking about making amends, setting things right, reparations, Mm -hmm. none of that, right? Yeah. And it's not because the theology isn't a part, I'd say, in just deeply embedded in the logics of Christianity, I would argue, but Mm. nonetheless, it's just absence. And so it's a convenient reconciliation that always makes white people feel good um, and then leaves, you know, um, everybody else still suffering and still under the oppressive unjust systems that already are in existence. And so we're supposed to... white people can't be set free in that system. That's right. Right. That's right. right. Women enslaved as well. Yeah. So this is not for just the, the, to benefit those who have been oppressed. This is to benefit, the to, uh, to give freedom. The flourishing to the of all this. Yeah, that's right, right. the healing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I remember um, 2004, I met Auntie Isabel Coe for the first time, who since the 70s has been part of the Aboriginal tent embassy uh, protests outside our parliament house, setting up an alternative Aboriginal uh, parliament house um, on their traditional lands. And she... Um, uh, uh, one of her most famous lines is white people talk of reconciliation, like emphasizing silly um, that she thinks um, uh, any talk of reconciliation that isn't talk of justice, it isn't talk of actually making things right is reconciliation. And that, that's how she says it every, every time. And it's, it's powerful and so true and so helpful for people to actually connect that together that, um, uh, it's you know Walter Wink um, loved to talk of uh, uh, the the church often naively wants to talk about reconciliation uh, with a lion and a, a lamb and the lion responds sure just after lunch. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's Randy, uh, this, this is a... made a, my theology too. By the way, uh, on the, <laughs> the powers theory. Yeah. 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 Um, me too, in a, in a really big way. Um, Walter was the, the first person to ever get me published when I was 20 years old. Um, I was arrested for, the first, I was 21, sorry, for the first time, and I, I sent him a reflection, and he wrote back, Randy, and he said, this is horribly written. <laughs> but clean it up, and we can do something with it. And, and he did, which I'm uh, forever thankful for. And um, uh, June continues really? to... Uh, write um, and encourage uh, when she sees that uh, we get arrested or um, this poster in the background here um, is actually a billboard that we wore after we were strip searched um, in a politician's office illegally and there was a crime and corruption commission investigation into um, uh, us pastors being um, strip searched um, in a non-violent protest but we came out of court and we um, uh, stripped down again to our underwear 
um, uh, and uh, walked back to the politician's office where they'd done it with these. And, and June Wink wrote again and she said, this is exactly what Walter was talking about. Uh, this is what it is to give um, the undergarment as well. Um, so I'm, right. I'm really appreciative That's of right. both of them. Um, we have a, a question here from uh, Alyssa and uh, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the, the other questions, Drew, on, um, that I've sent through to you. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll read one from Alyssa if, if you have time, Randy, and maybe we'll end with um, uh, one from Mike Hardy that, that Drew can share. But Alyssa's in Germany and uh, she, she writes, the concept of shalom is often only talk in churches as the idea of something that's going to happen um, at the end, uh, you know, when Jesus comes back. What are the dangers of a message of the gospel we think or teach that shalom is something we only do um, uh, when Jesus comes back instead of something that we're, we're striving for now? Right. So um, I have no eschatology. Um, I only have today. Yeah, Randy, would, would you elaborate on that? Because um, I think that would be quite a... Um, for, for those of us who are influenced by um, uh, uh, socialist thought or, or more Jewish, um, my mum's side of the family are, are Russian Jews, and uh, whether it's Walter Benjamin and talking about um, the, the arrival uh, of a different future, um, to often encounter Indigenous theologians um, and uh, not talking about eschatology, how, would you explain for people how that how that works. Yeah. So, and you talk about silly. I mean, eschatology is some of the silliest stuff that's out there, right? <laughs> that's right. So, uh, <laughs> foolish people talking about foolish things. Um, you know, the uh, Redbird Smith is one of our uh, traditional people among our Katua people, our Cherokee people. And uh, he said, um, my religion doesn't teach me uh, what I should do tomorrow, but what I should do today. Huh. I think Jesus said something like that. He said, like, hey, tomorrow's <laughs> got enough problems. That's right. You know, today, you know? And so my eschatology, you know, may stretch as far as what I'm going to do tomorrow. Um, but, uh, uh, but I'm pretty sure that it, whatever I'm doing on earth uh, it, is, is the, uh, um, is creating hopefully a place of shalom that maybe will happen later. I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows. Um, but I do know that if it isn't doing me any good on earth today, then it's, what's the point of it doing any good later? Mm. So, um, you know, we, we create our own eschatology. We are, as they say, Paul says, co-laborers with Christ. We are led by the spirit. We are, people who attack uh, unjust structures and change them and uh, do it all in the fellowship of Christ. And, uh, and that's my eschatology, you know, hmm. and I just don't think, you know, I mean, we kind of, in, in traditional Indian way, we have like the happy hunting ground sort of idea, but it's not, a, it's not what you call a developed theology or a developed idea. It's hmm. just like, you know, if, if I learn my lessons and do well in this life, then I'll go to this other good place. And if I don't, I'm probably going to struggle in between for a while somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. and, and none of that's really explained because like, who can explain it? Right. <laughs> Who's been there and come back? 
<laughs> so what's the point? All right, so we have one last question, and this was from Mike Hardy, and this is his question. He says, my question is, does the phrase community of creation or the harmony way or shalom get better engagement with those outside the faith than kingdom metaphors or ways that we describe what we are about in, our, in your experience? Yeah, I, I think he's kind of answered his own question there. Um, it, it absolutely does. Um, I can talk in any circles about the community of creation and, um, and expand on that and talk about what it's about. Um, I think uh, that, you know, if I try to, if, if I go to, like, I belong to an interfaith thing in Oregon called the Common Table, and it's uh, people from all faiths, um, you know, uh, Buddhists, uh, there are imams, there are, you know, rabbis, there are, um, you know, Mormon elders, there are uh, like real elders, the heads of the church kind of people, not the 18-year-old guys that run around and call themselves elders. Um, <laughs> you, uh, um, you know, there evangelicals, all, all kinds of people are part of this thing, right? So if I talk about the kingdom, um, I am alienating a whole lot of people. But if I talk about the community of creation, they understand that I mean this whole thing, right? right. That I'm talking about the our whole life. And, and I think people sort of get it mixed up because they, they think of kingdom as a bubble that we're supposed to live in. Right. Well, there's no bubble. The kingdom is what you live out on earth, you know, and, uh, and, and like it says, and I, and I think it's Isaiah, you know, under the, the, you know, the, uh, I'm not a classical person, but I know that the, that, that the one says the, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God, right? Who's that? Uh, Jared, you're white. You have to know this. Like, <laughs> is that like Hanson? The, the, the question, uh, uh, also, we're in, we're in the book of Revelation, um, and yeah, Handel yeah, uses it in Handel's Messiah, um, that the kingdom. There we go. See? You don't disappoint, brother. Uh, Handel isn't very Irish nor Jewish, but like I'll do what I can. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, so anyway, it's like what, that is like that. That's eschatology. That's that is uh, this kingdom. That is the community of creation. Mm. It becomes what everything else is supposed to be, and um, we've got it backwards, right? And so um, community creation, um, by the way, I found out later that uh, I thought I'd made that up, you know, and I, I did a lot of searching and uh, come to find out that, uh, you know, back in the 70s that uh, Moltmann was actually, he'd used that phrase. No way. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's not in his book on creation. It's in a, another book about something else. I forgot. I came oh. across it one day reading his stuff and I'm like, whoa, Damn. this is like 71, <laughs> something like that. Okay. So, and, and I'm not sure that, you know, we may have some differences of how we understand that. I don't know, but, yeah. but, um, yeah, so, so, so this wasn't, you know, I guess, uh, I wasn't the first. You never are really. Right. <laughs> I, I love, um, this line from your text, uh, 
Um, you say, in our day, empire is affecting the whole planet in a very destructive way. Perhaps the community of creation can be understood not just as a theological construct, but an alternative phrase accompanying Jesus's meaning in our global context while still retaining its original anti-imperialist nuances. I think that's so important as well, that we don't go from one horrible understanding to, of the kingdom um, to lose actually what Jesus was doing uh, with the phrase in his context. You go on to say, Randy, the phrase community of creation is specifically infused with biblical and indigenous meaning because it assumes all of creation is participating in a new community, not just humans. A broader contextualized phrase such as community of creation may help move Western Christians from provincialism to a point where they understand that embedded within Jesus's indigenous teachings of community of creation is a key, not just for saving us, but also for healing our planet. Wow, Randy, you write well. That is amazing. It's the big thing. Yeah, yep. you know, I like I go back and read that stuff once in a while, and I'm like, where the heck did I come up with that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I must go into some kind of trances or something and get smart temporarily because later on I, I don't sound near as smart. So. <laughs> it, it's gold randy um we're so thankful for your work yeah. and witness um yeah uh you, your influence on us from afar you've always got a place to stay uh, next time uh you're, you're down under you're well loved here by many many people and i'm um, sharing uh your stuff with people from around the world from um uh, southern africa and uh, western europe and um uh, as you refer to a turtle idol and um ha has been a joy so Keep on keeping on because we're thankful for you. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for having me on. Appreciate it. And it's really good to get to know you. I hope I get to see you in the future. I'd yeah, love that. Absolutely. Randy. That'd be great. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Randy. Okay. Take care. Take care, my friend. Bye. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.